0: Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation, from academic discussions happening in our journal, to interviews with filmmakers and artists, and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities, because life happens
1: at the intersections. Hello and welcome to this edition of Medical Humanities podcast series. Uh, this is Khalid Ali, the film and media correspondent at Medical Humanities online blogs. It gives me great pleasure and honor to introduce uh, Nahid Tobia, an eminent Sudanese surgeon, public health consultant, a humanitarian and activist. We're meeting here following the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecologist uh, Women United, the celebration of the International Day of Action in Women's Health. Uh, Nahid gave an eloquent and thought-provoking speech of about women, uh, women's health, reproductive and um, sexual rights in Sudan and worldwide. Uh, welcome uh, Nahid to this uh, interview. Please share with us your background as a multi-talented and you've got diverse skills in uh, several areas of medicine and human rights.
0: Thank you Khalid. Uh, Thank you very much for this opportunity to have this conversation. Uh, I'm so delighted that a fellow Sudanese uh, is both interested in medicine and health and art and cinema. Uh, I am passionate about uh, how we use uh, concepts of health uh, as a right not just as a public good, and also how to use arts, and particularly visual arts, to move people emotionally, to move their sensibilities, the heart and the mind, as they say, uh, to be interested in the importance of rights. Um, I grew up in Sudan, in uh, Khartoum, North Bahri. Uh, My mother always uh, loved doctors, so I suppose somehow she influenced me to be a doctor. Uh, but I was also very interested. I always loved cinema since I was a really small child. I lived between two big cinemas in Khartoum North, so I always went to the cinema. Uh, but anyway, of course, as you know, in our part of the world, yeah. when you are clever and smart... You, you have end to be up a doctor. Go, you have to go <laughs> to medicine. So I went into medicine. I Also, it was a challenge, a challenge. At that time, there were several women doctors, but still it was not as popular for women. But as I said, mostly probably influenced more my grandmother and the general trend in the culture. Uh, Eventually, I specialized in surgery because, again, since I was young, I always questioned the situation of women. Why are we not the same as men? Why can't we have the same opportunities? Although I came out of a family also that believed that women are not that different from men. They allowed us to play sports, to travel. I even was allowed to travel alone with a group of singers, uh, you know, for, for good social issues around Africa. So I had a very liberal family.
1: And that's unusual for the uh, Sudanese and African and Arab uh, traditional culture. So we're talking about uh, late 70s? Yes, yeah.
0: I was born in 1951. Well, so by the time I was 15, 16, that's when I actually traveled. But even before that, we we, we went swimming, we played tennis, we played uh, basketball. I, you know, my father was... a sportsman and he encouraged us to we dance but Sudan was also had its own liberal environment it wasn't all Sudan but the kind of middle class Sudan had a certain post colonial liberal environment that we were part of
1: so and was it a conscious then uh, decision that you wanted to prove uh, to maybe yourself and, and, and the environment and the society we're in that you chose a, an unusual career path which is Surgery. Uh, so, so, you're one of, if not the very first. Uh, uh, I woman surgeon.
0: Yeah. I am the first woman surgeon, and I haven't researched it, but probably one of the very early, if not the first, in Middle East and Africa. So, mm-hmm. it was a very big uh, step, and I did it very consciously. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I uh, after I finished medical school, I was clear. You know, I was smart. I mean, I, I I'm very fine. Smart. <laughs> Not trying to be too humble or <laughs> or bragging, but at the same, you know, I was so I was encouraged. Um, to do you know to continue being a specialist and and there was a lot of good men who also supported me who were in power at the time and i just said you know what i know my family will support me to whatever i do Uh, and i have the guts and unlike other people i felt a sense of obligation to break through new new uh, grounds 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 for 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 women
1: so following your uh, specialization as a as a surgeon and a pediatric surgeon you came to the UK and then you trained in Wales and then you moved into an entirely different career path which is public health and you did your uh, postgraduate qualifications at the London School of uh, uh, Economy and then the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, so you you went into public health after? Yeah I did
0: my fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons in London after I trained around the UK and South Wales uh, and then I just, I went back, I, I practiced surgery for about 15 years, uh, or in med, you know, pre-specialization, as it was all together about 15 years. And then I just, uh, when I, when Sudan started getting politically difficult uh, to, to be able to continue in Sudan, and I was active uh, socially and politically, to some extent, in the Doctors' Union. As you know, the Doctors' Union has been at the forefront of all uprisings in Sudan. In '64 in '85, I, I played a big role and I was put in prison for that. And so when Sudan started going back again and the Islamists were taking over, I decided I have to leave. It was not a, a healthy place to stay. And I decided, no, I'm going to get out and I'm going to find a way to combine my interest in social and political change with health. Uh, So I thought even of going to sociology, I thought that's too far. So I had to go to some kind of public health. And I found this degree in health planning and financing, which kind of understood how to create systems that are equitable uh, in health, and that was important to me.
1: And that took you to new grounds and new ventures. So you went to New York and you established uh, a new, uh, or you proved yourself in a new challenging area, and then that you moved into women's uh, issues and Um, Writes rights on a global scale. Tell us about your experience in New York. Uh,
0: It was almost a a natural uh, progression. I was interested in women issues even when I was in deep clinical practice. So I had it as a side uh, gig, as they say. I used to write and I would go to conferences, but on my spare time. So when I got out of clinical, it just became more and more natural. To combine my interest in women's issues and my interest in health. Unfortunate for me, the concept of reproductive health was just bourgeoning. It actually started in New York around that time.
1: And you were there.
0: And I was I was there almost in the first year after the whole idea of reproductive health, not mm-hmm. even rights or sexual, mm-hmm. just reproductive health. Today people would think, how you know, they've thought this concept has been there all the time. No, it's actually started in the late 80s and early nineties.
1: And you assumed very senior positions. So t- tell us about the roles that and the organizations that you worked in and you led eventually in New York.
0: Yes, I went to present a paper at the Population Council in New York and they immediately offered me a job. And, and that was when? Uh, that was 1989, early 89. So I started, I went to the Population Council and took a position, one of four people who led the whole portfolio of this new area called reproductive health. And while we were there, we actually developed the concept of sexual health because HIV was just starting and, you know, HIV is really what started the the epidemic, just started the concept of sexual. And then it wasn't until 1994, when we went to the International Conference Population Development, ICPD in Cairo, that a colleague of mine, uh, Lynn Friedman, and I uh, developed a series of workshops D- developing the concept of reproductive rights, which until '94 wasn't there. Uh, so, yes, I, I was fortunate. I was given opportunities. And New York, of course, is a very buzzing place, and it's where a lot of policy happens, particularly in engaging with the UN, with the big foundation, Rockefeller, uh, uh, Ford Foundation, MacArthur, you know, all these were moving into those areas. So I had, a, 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 yeah, I had the opportunity to become more of an international figure, going to conferences, presenting, and these ideas were new, so I was fortunate in almost uh, helping to develop these concepts and and explore what we mean by all this at the very early stage.
1: But you chose women's uh, health, uh, women's uh, sexual reproductive rights as your niche area, and uh, but that's, as I said, that's not only on the African but um, circles, but on a, on a more international scale, and, and you traveled around the world with exploring abortion uh, um, health or abortion rights and antenatal health and so forth. So you covered a lot of areas in.
0: I genuinely believe that reproductive health and therefore reproductive rights, and therefore you cannot have reproduction without sex. So sexual health, sexual rights. So it has to be the four combination is central to every human being's life. I have not met a person who is in a relationship or not, who is married or not, who's had children or not, who wants to stay celibate or have a lot of partners, (laughs) who is not affected by this area. It's just seen, it's where the exact crossing between the social, economic, and the uh, med- medical or the health. And the health and uh, well-being. Of course, I also believe all diseases have a social issue. TB has a social, HIV, everything has a social and political but side. But reproductive and sexual health, right, are at the heart human of, of human rights, but also gender definition, roles of people, and, and it's for everybody. However, women giving have the unique ability to carry, you know, to have children, to carry children and then give birth puts them into this huge other risk from the moment they have sex whether they want it or not to when getting pregnant to whether they can or cannot keep that child want or not want to keep that child to how their pregnancy continues to how they carry their children how they take care of the children reproductive and sexual health right at the heart of anything to do with women not whether you're a CEO or a farmer in Zimbabwe, you are affected by your reproduction. So to me, being a women's activist, it's just natural that I was thrown into reproductive and sexual health and rights. And of course, the rights aspect is when women don't have the rights for proper health and care and and even controlling their sexuality and reproduction, then they can't be part of the public
1: life. And he engaged with the health and policy and laws and regulations and, and setting agendas on an international level. So uh, tell us about your Rainbow organisation, then we'll come and talk about the new organized the institute that you, you've uh, led. In. Rainbow
0: so, stood for Research, Action and Information Network for Bodily Integrity of Women. Uh, we wanted to work on all aspects of bodily integrity and the right of women to their own bodies. However, this was also the first an uh, international organization led by African women. And I needed to challenge that idea that the word international means Western countries and Western people. Uh, we can be international and be African. That was to me, a very an African led by African women. That was the first challenge. Um, of course, we tackled the issue of female genital mutilation, not because exclusively that's what we think the whole spectrum of women's bodily integrity, but it was the very big African issue and uh, almost hijacked by the West to to show Africans as being primitive and uh, barbaric and all that. And we wanted to turn it around and we did to make it a women's rights issue, get the African women's movement to stand behind it because they kind of didn't want to get near it. There is an African women's movement. They just didn't want to come near it because the West was using it almost as a stick to beat Africans with. And we turned it around and made it a women's rights to her body, to her sexuality, And yes, through that, we were able through Rainbow to articulate policies to everything from the World Bank to UNICEF to uh, all the international ages, the World Health Organization, producing technical and very well thought through documentation, research, so that, again, it doesn't become a political fight. But it also, you know, I believe in combining science and activism.
1: And you used as well that platform, Rainbow, to... Uh, provide and produce uh, information, material, training, education to healthcare professionals, social workers. So use that as a as a lobbying, but as well as to train and support the workers in the field absolutely uh, just as an example we
0: produced lots of training material we produced some material for the American Association of Obedience Society that is now being trained all over the the United States Uh, We also produced something called Caring for Women with Circumcision, which was given a four-star review by the British Medical Journal. And that is also copies of that are in every medical school in the United States and and, and very well uh, used all over the world. Uh, Again, as I said, I believe that we as doctors, we have to use science and our knowledge to also make statements about social issues and also uh, go to those who, you know, maybe... Activists who sometimes don't have the scientific knowledge, and sometimes they veer from the facts because they're enthusiastic, let's say. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, we, I believe that we can combine science activism to make well-argued uh, statements about how we should fight for the rights of all people, whether it's disabled or women or children or
1: men. Even. And, and, and you have authored several books, subjects relating to women's health and well-being. So tell us about what led you to um, author, uh, write those books. And, and so, so, because it's again for, for a, a practicing doctor and a public health consultant and an activist and a humanitarian to write it all up and, and, and share it on a different platform. These are special skills. Well, I just had to train <laughs> myself, I
0: suppose, and, and do the hard work and it's hard work. But again, it's creating um, uh, credibility. Yeah. Uh, I think standing on microphones, and I speak very well in microphones, but it still kind of goes into the air, and it becomes a sort of activism that can be taken lightly. I think by producing well-researched and well-documented books, it, it's more lasting, it reaches more people, and it also gives you that, as I said, credibility that you're not just talking.
1: Yeah. And now you've founded a new organization, a new institute uh, for... Uh reproductive and sexual health in Sudan. So tell us about the new institute and the creative um, element to it.
0: My love for Sudan Sudan has never waned. I I never really wanted to live abroad. I left Sudan because I had to. I enjoyed being in England. I enjoyed being in America. I think there is a part of me has learned. I, I consider myself, there are pieces of me that is American and British and Egyptian and whatever, but deep inside, I'm the, the little girl who grew up in Khatoum North. And my love and understanding and passion for Sudanese society, just I cannot replicate it. I enjoy being in other places. So I always wanted to go back. So I, when I got that, what I needed internationally in terms of, you know, as I said, I say fame and fortune, not much fortune, but at least I, I felt satisfied. I needed to go back and serve what I consider are closer to, to me, my people. So I went back to Sudan, and I've been really trying, but the conditions, the political situation was very bad. I needed to bring back sexually reproductive health and rights to women in Sudan, to youth in Sudan, both women and women, uh, and to even the girls in Sudan who are still to this day being cut and mutilated and, uh, you know, given away in, in child marriage. So I went back and struggled for many years and and tried to get back my name in Sudan so that I can have the credibility. Again, it's all about credibility. Uh, I believe that we should have power and use our power positively. You said, you know, how I use my skills. It's being a doctor, being an international name, being a lot of things, you know, being part of the UN and human rights organization globally when i made my international name then i could come to sudan and have the power and the name to actually make change then i started realizing the change that happened to sudan while i was away which is the number of young people educated young people we have about 60% of the population under 60 they are increasingly urbanizing if not at khartoum but in uh, mostly khartoum but also in many other cities port sudan medani obaid Uh, you name it, Fasher, and we have 130 universities. We have a tsunami. I could see the tsunami of young people coming and I interacted with, I would say thousands of them through different activities. So at some point I realized I should then combine my deeper skills, which my understanding of sexual reproductive health and rights, my connection to young people and start an institution that would be lasting for Sudan. It's nice to do activities, but then I need it. I think to create this, an institution is to create a country of institutions. And that's why I finally found a way to register the Institute for Reproductive Health and Rights in Sudan. Uh,
1: interestingly, that you used again a medium of uh, creativity and arts to reach out and disseminate the messages of health and well being with re- relation to young girls and women. That you used the theatre performances, plays, open-air concerts, uh, documentary films that you appeared in or produced and directed and wrote the script for. So you used the, a medium that is accessible, understandable to youth, which is arts and creativity. So tell us about that experience. I always loved art, and
0: particularly visual arts. I always go to the theatre all the time. And you know when you get to your 60s, and I'm 67 now, you kind of have that leisure mm. to bring back the dreams. You know, you do clinical, you do surgery, and then when you become 60, you can say, hey, you know what, I can also do combine my other passions and skills. But I think also very seriously uh, working with young people. Young people are creative. They they They're not stupid, but they don't read heavy books. It's a different generation. They're online. They are carrying a mobile phone. They text with a few words, you know. Uh, and they are very creative. I mean, I think the Sudan Revolution showed the amount of creativity uh, with young people in Sudan in, in drawing and art awesome. and cinema poetry. and video and poetry. They're using their right brain much more than we did. We were trained to use our left brain, you know, with big books and things. And, and so if we're going to reach the new generation, why not? There is nothing. I'm, I love books and I like people to read. But we shouldn't say, oh, because they're stupid, they're a generation who only know how to text with with 10 words, uh, that they are not smart. They're smart and they may be able to have a language through creativity that we didn't allow ourselves to have.
1: To develop and nurture. So you're nurturing all these uh, creative talents and and skills and pool of of resources. Um, I'm keen for you to tell us about one particular program, I Will Not which is I will not circumcise for women that they will not engage in uh, the traumatic procedure of uh, FGM or female genital mutilation or cutting, that you used short plays to deliver important health and social messages.
0: Anilin, which is I will not, actually came out from a program that was called Youth in Action. We just got a group of young men and women from different backgrounds and we trained them on concepts for a whole year, gave them different ideas. Some of it scientific, some social, some uh, you know, economic dynamic. What is sexual reproductive health and rights about? And then when we asked them, everybody should have that starter or little idea for a project. Most of them wanted to work on Khitan or female genital mutation because cut or not, women and men, this issue affects everybody, especially in Sudan. And it's deeper in sitting in people's psyche than we think. People think, oh, people are dismissing it and they want to talk about it. That's not true. Anyway, when they brainstormed, the young people came up with the concept of NLM. And because the the reason is, the way people deal with FGM is they're always preaching somebody else, saying, don't do it, it's barbaric, it's stupid, it's bad tradition. Well, they said, no, we want to stand up and take the personal responsibility and the social courage to say, I will not and lead by example and create almost an epidemic of leading by example. If everybody stands up or many people stand up, the next person will stand up and say NNN rather than preach. So that was the basic idea. And also uh, get people to speak about their experiences. And they identify five voices, the cut woman, the mother who usually
1: endorses the practices,
0: uh, the father, the male person, whether it's a friend or a brother or a boyfriend or ultimately the husband, uh, and then also the, the health people. So, And we said we should promote these voices because, again, the way people deal with FGM is almost like it's it's an object. Let's stop FGM as if it's something that you switch the cap oh, no. on <laughs> or off or something, or it's an opinion. They treat it sometimes like malaria, and mm. it's not. It's a, it's a social, mental, you know, cultural issue. So one of the things is we wanted to promote the voices. Let the young woman tell about her feelings and her experience. Now, how can we do that? The first one we did was a a performance, a theatrical performance, where for the first time somebody stands in the theater and says, what does it feel to have been cut? Because that touches people. It also speaks for hundreds and thousands of women who would like to say the same, and they want to hear somebody stand on the stage and say that rather than just a clinical description of what it is. The second play was about the mother and the dilemma the mother feels having been cut, feeling that she has to repeat it, suppressing her own pain, because that's the way to reach these mothers so they can stop by getting them to get in touch with their own feeling of their own experience that's been suppressed by the cultural norm. So obviously that's, these are messages that, and voices that can only be gotten across through art.
1: I can only salute you, um, Nahid, for your uh, diverse uh, skills and, and track record and, and continuing the fight of uh, women, not only in Sudan, across the African and the Arab world, and using these um, creative uh, endeavours to, to reach out. So. It's been inspiring and, and great talking to you. So thank you very much. And we hope that we'll continue the conversation.
0: Thank you, Khalid, And I hope we'll have some ways to collaborate in the future together.
1: Indeed, we will. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook.